0: All right, and in the past few weeks, we set up the primary problem with the world and its solution in the Old Testament. When God created the world, he triumphed over to the chaos of the formless void and made it function. But humans sinned, and God allowed them to live without him, like they apparently wished. The result of that was that the world was falling apart, and instead of the chaos that existed before God created the world was encroaching. Humans recognized that problem and tried to fix it by making a tower to heaven so they could have God's presence whenever they wanted. But God instead decided that he would come down to be present with the world through the family of a guy named Abraham. This family was incredibly blessed in a way that everyone from every country recognized. After a while, God quite literally lived in a tent next to all the Israelites, just like in the Garden of Eden. Of course, just like in the Garden there were a few rules about how to make sure that God could be present with them, since God is holy. The Israelites were really bad at following these rules, but God continued to bless them and be present with them anyway. And eventually he, re- he had reached the point where he had mostly fulfilled all that he had pro- promised to Abraham. So he moved on to make promises to David that he would be present with the chains of Israel and through his presence, the world would finally be saved. Now, every culture everywhere just like here, looks at the world and has no trouble saying that there's a problem. Just like we saw in the Tower of Babel, pretty much everyone in the area in time where the Israelites lived more or less agreed about what that problem was. For them, the problem was that the world was naturally and slowly falling into the chaos if left alone. Now, that isn't often the way that we think of the problem of the world. To some extent, we don't experience true chaos in the world like they did since we live in a relatively stable society. But every once in a while, the reason that chaos was so scary for them really peeks its head out and becomes evident even in our world. For instance, when there's, an army, when there's a war and the army that was protecting you was destroyed, and now there's nothing standing between you and the enemy so they can do whatever they want with you. Or when there's a shooting and you find out for whatever reason, no one will come to save you. And remember just this morning how you were eating your Cheerios thinking this was going to be a normal day. Or if a loved one gets a horrible disease out of nowhere at a young age and they're dying and the doctors have no idea what the disease is or how to treat it. Chaos always makes you feel helpless and makes you feel like the whole world is completely random and there's really nothing beyond the, behind the world that actually makes it make sense. Chaos makes it naturally seen that there's no purpose to life. Every day we experience a tiny little bit of it if someone sins against you. You think, what could I have possibly done to deserve this? How could I even begin to make sense of this? On an even smaller scale, when you do a lot of work for something and in the end it all falls apart, maybe you spent forever writing something and you just forget to hit save and it's all gone. And you think, what was the point of all that? Or let's say you plant a garden. The garden isn't going to bear fruit alone because of the forces of chaos, in this case weeds. It will take it over and make it so it doesn't do what it's meant to do. If you're familiar with a bit of philosophy, there's a school of thought called absurdism, which was really popular with certain authors like Albert Camus and Kurt Vonnegut. Absurdism basically says that the fact that death is coming means that life is entirely meaningless. Even if you do a really great thing, in the end you won't be able to enjoy it all the work you'll ever do one day will be torn down and no one will remember you. They thought that chaos was the natural order of things and practically everything we do is just a mask that we put on it so that we can avoid looking at the chaos. This philosophy, whether people call it absurdism or not, is super popular with people my age. When you grow up in the most depressed, mentally ill, and drug addicted generation in a long time, it kind of made sense. Most of us really aren't all that happy but we don't know why. And sometimes trying to make things better doesn't work. So it ends up seeming seeming hopeless and meaningless. The Bible, in a lot of ways, sympathizes with that idea. The world that we see ourselves, a lot of times, doesn't look like it has a lot of meaning. People die for no reason. We don't see the fruits of our labor, and we just have a hard time making sense of it. In Romans 8, it says that God subjected the world to futility, a lot of Job's speeches really make the same point, that there's no justice in the world. The writer of Ecclesiastes was an absurdist about 2,500 years before pool. <laughs> but what's interesting about the Bible is that it says there was a time before chaos. There was a time when the world that God created was nothing but good. When God could casually take a stroll in the garden and with his friend Adam, and the only rule that had to be followed was, don't eat that fruit. And because of that, the Bible says that chaos isn't actually the natural order of things. It shouldn't be true that when you plant a garden, you have to keep the weeds out, or that people die unexpectedly without any reason. Other cultures in this area just kind of believe that chaos was always a problem, and it always would be. It is what it is. But the Bible said that chaos is not natural. And since there was a time without it, that means there could once again come a day when we don't have to deal with evil and chaos. Here's an example. I'm a Washington Commanders fan, and it's just not a good team. (laughs) They're really bad and have been my whole life. And it's not just that the team is bad, but I've come to believe that the owner is purposely sabotaging the whole thing just to get back at the fans (laughs) for not liking him. It seems completely impossible that this team could ever win the Super Bowl. But my dad lived through a time when the Commanders were actually really good and they won three Super Bowls in 10 years. So that means, well, if they were good before, they could be good again. They might actually win a Super Bowl in my lifetime. Who knows? So that's what keeps me hooked. (laughs) I'm also a Maryland football fan. They have never come close to even being in the conversation for winning a national championship since practically any of us were alive. It's a whole different kind of impossible for them. They practically play in a different league from all the teams that actually have a chance. And so I really don't watch them every week. It's hard to care. It's really similar with the gospel. The Bible says that there was a time before chaos, and if there was a time before sin and death and evil and toil, there could be a time without it. They were completely unnatural, so who knows? Maybe God will save save us from it someday. Other cultures were a lot like Maryland football fans. They thought that chaos was just a fact of life. So how is God going to bring back order? Well, when people in the ancient world wanted to talk about this kind of chaos and absurdism, in text after text, they said it in a way that was very similar to what was said in Psalm 2, 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. All the nations gather together and are restless, plotting together to take God down along with his rightful king. They wanna tear down the order that God has created and that's best represented by fighting against God's, represent, God's representative on earth, the king. So this Psalm recognizes this same issue that the world is rebelling against God and plunging it into the chaos that creates wars and murder and meaninglessness. They are uncreating the world. Now, if you were Camus or Vonnegut or any of the absurdists in our culture, that would basically be the end of the story. Stuff is really bad. It gets worse. We deal with it. Then we die. (laughs) But instead, things reverse courses. It says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And it immediately becomes clear and obvious how ridiculous this absurdism looks. God sits in heaven, so all the forces of evil and chaos and absurdism look like ants to him. Really, forces of evil and chaos? You really think you can challenge God and his chosen king on earth? Good luck. All God has to do is speak to them, and they will be terrified just by knowing that God has put his chosen king in Jerusalem, and he ain't moving. It seems to us that looking at the world, the way we experienced unexpected misfortune, seems to say that there isn't a lot of meaning in our lives. In the smallest sense, they're right. Sin removes meaning from life. And if it weren't for God coming to judge the whole world, we would have to say that this meaninglessness is a fact of life. Who are we to say that that acts which in our gut we believe are horrible, are actually horrible, if God doesn't reign on the earth? You could very easily say, this is just the way it is, so it goes. But if God is going to come and destroy chaos and judge the living and the dead, if God reigns over the whole earth, the world has rhyme and reason. Things are bad and evil and sinful because they rebel against the good world that God created. God alone allows us to call evil things evil. So at this point, the Cain is the one who begins talking. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Here, the relationship between God and the king was so inseparable that fighting against the king was the exact same as fighting against God. And you don't want to fight against God. If all went to plan, it wouldn't so much be that the king is reigning over Israel, but that God is reigning over the world. And if God reigned over the world, that meant that all the stuff that makes you wonder whether the world really has meaning is exactly as powerless as it is in this passage. That's not just true here. Take a flip through the Psalms and books like Isaiah, and you'll see plenty of times that say the Lord reigns in Zion. This is the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. In the ancient world, the garden was the place where the king would put all his prized possessions. It's no wonder, of course, that God put humans in his garden. Because that's what the world needs. It needs God's righteous kingship to be restored. And the way that God plans on doing it is through a king from David's family. Now, most scholars actually believe that this psalm was used every time that the Israelites had to crown a king. This is why the psalm says, today I have begotten you. Because when the king was crowned, it was like God was adopting the king as his son so that God was always on the king's side, and he would punish him when he does what's wrong and reward him when he does what's right. If you remember last week, this language of the king being God's son is borrowed from the covenant that God made with David, that God would do whatever he has to do to make sure that one of David's descendants sits on the throne of Israel forever. And the day that God adopts the king is literally today the day when the king receives his crown and begins ruling. And you can imagine every year when this psalm is read as the king is crowned, that all the people in attendance would be thinking, yes, God, this is what we need. We need a king who does what you want him to do. We need a king who is strong and who saves us from our enemies and puts all the kings of the earth on notice that our God reigns. We need a king who leads us to becoming the people who will save the world, just like you said to Abraham and David. We need a king who overcomes the chaos and evil and absurdism of the world and brings us back to the peace and stability of the garden. Of course, after the last four weeks, you can probably guess what I'll say next. None of these kings were any good. (laughs) They fought and rebelled against God more than any of the other nations did. But every time this psalm was read and another king was crowned, people would would have to have been saying, Could this king be the one? Finally? The New Testament is very clear that this role of the ideal king who will save the world is finally fulfilled in Jesus. When he died on the cross, he drew all the powers of evil and chaos and absurdism into himself, and he experienced its true weight. If you want to know whether you can trust God that he cares about evil and chaos and meaninglessness, just know that he felt every bit of it on the cross. The nations raged, and the rulers of the earth, Satan and the demons and Rome and the Jewish leaders, were together to burst apart their shackles and kill the true Son of God. They used the one power they knew, the power of violence, and crucified Jesus. But when they crucified him, they were crucified along with him. And the one enthroned in heaven laughed and held them in derision. Colossians says says that on the cross, Jesus exposed the powers of evil and chaos to public mockery. In his resurrection, Jesus dashed the powers of sin and death with a rod of iron like a potter's vessel. At that point, he was coronated as God's promised chosen king, so that Paul says, this promise he has fulfilled to us, Abraham's children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written, you are my son, today I have forgotten you. And since these powers were so totally disarmed and embarrassed by the judgment of God's chosen king, they no longer had any power over the church. A small group of 12 people in Galilee became a worldwide kingdom made up of billions of people, and God is present with them just like in the garden and in the temple. In the times when the forces of evil and chaos tried to take control of the church through the same violence they used against Jesus, The church only grew stronger. One time in Acts 4, Peter and John were thrown in prison, but God miraculously got them out. And the whole church sang together, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed king. In other words, they knew that the forces of evil that once ruled over the world no longer have any power. Sometimes they'll obstinately try to assert themselves, but their power over the world has been completely broken by Jesus. So now the church is the king's agents to do the mopping-up job and to demonstrate God's rule in the world. The church knew that the kingdom of this world is no longer the kingdom of chaos and evil and meaninglessness. If God reigns through his Messiah right now, that means that all the forces that were to destroy the world which God made Forces like mass shooters and evil dictators are just emissaries of a thoroughly broken power. They will be judged and embarrassed along with all the other powers. And one day, those forces will be gone forever, just like in the garden. So that Revelation says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his king, and he shall reign forever and ever. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. And those who fear your name, both small and great. And for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Amen.